0: Isaiah chapter 55, and this is the word of the living God. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Instead of the thorn, shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So now with
1: our study this morning, we will
0: look at Revelation chapter 3,
1: verses 14 to 22. The letter to the church of Laodicea. The word of the Lord reads, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the all men, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The title of the message is The Church That Nauseates Jesus. That which sickens our Lord is a tepid heart. The words, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, is a message to seven historical churches in Asia Minor that conclude each one of the seven letters, whereas at the same time serves as an uninterrupted message to the worldwide church throughout time. This is a comprehensive warning. If you recall, in our first letter that we looked at a number of weeks ago to the church of Ephesus, they were given the threat of losing their first love. They were doctorally astute. They knew sound doctrine. They proclaimed sound doctrine. They could, they could discern a heretic a mile away, but Jesus said, you have left your first love, and he warned them, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember? Repent and repeat those things he said you did at first. To the church of Smyrna, they were a group that was gripped by fear, the fear of suffering. They were under heavy-handed persecution, slander from unbelieving Jews, and the Lord's encouragement to them was to be faithful. (laughs) Be faithful unto death. Some of you will be cast into prison and some of you will die. Remain faithful. To the church of Pergamum, they were immersed in doctrinal compromise. They were your theological accommodationists of the day. They made a deal of compromise with society. Jesus said to them, repent, or I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. To Thyatira, even though their deeds were greater than those that they did at first, and they were marked by their love, they gave in to moral and doctrinal compromise. And we see clearly that it is not enough to simply be a loving church. They had love. Jesus rebuked them. The church of Sardis, if you remember, they had a a reputation for being alive. They had a reputation in their unbelieving culture. The community loved them. There was no opposition. There was no persecution. Jesus said, although you have a reputation of being alive, as I look at you, You're dead. And he called them to strengthen what remains and yet was about to die. To the church of Philadelphia, who were experiencing suffering, and they were about to face more, Jesus said to them, I have opened the door before you that no one can shut. I have the keys of David, and what I open, no one shuts, and what I shut, no one opens. Hold on. Don't let go. And here now to the seventh church in Asia Minor, the church of Laodicea, they receive a devastating letter of condemnation. A clear call to repent of lukewarmness. Now if you notice your handout, it's pretty extensive and that is simply to help you follow along in the sermon. Hang your thoughts on each one of these points. And we'll begin with Laodicea, the city. As you know, Laodicea was most famous for its climate. (laughs) That is the climate of the heart. They're not too cold. They're not too hot. They're always the same. Everything's just right in Laodicea. And Jesus speaks here of the deadly predicament of the church within that city. being lukewarm, tepid, middle-of-the-road people, if you will. Laodicea was a city of great wealth. They had a lot of self-confidence. And of all the seven destination cities of Asia Minor, this was the most confident, without doubt, of all seven. If you remember this devastating earthquake that crumbled the city of Philadelphia in the year 17? Well, it also crumbled Laodicea. And then in 60 AD, another earthquake leveled Laodicea. And when the Roman government stepped in and offered financial aid to rebuild the city, the Roman historian Tacitus records that Laodicea proudly refused imperial financial assistance in rebuilding. Not needing help of Rome to rebuild was was quite a feat in and of itself. That would be like one of our coastal cities experiencing a great hurricane, calling Washington and saying, no need, we'll take care of it ourselves. You don't even need to show up, we've got her covered. So their pride and their self-sufficiency caused them to forego any claim to aid from imperial Rome. They relied on their own resources to rebuild. They were determined to show how strong they were by way of rebuilding from within. Laodicea also prided itself in their medical school, a very famous medical university. They had developed an eye ointment there, um, also one for the years. And many in their day had sought eye salve that was developed here in Laodicea. They had medical practitioners who studied at Laodicea that were also sought out for their expertise. Among the chief exports in the city of Laodicea was this expensive seamless garments that they would make that were woven from this black shiny wool. Some of which were made into tunics that only the elite Roman upper class could afford. Laodicea was also known for its wealthy banking center. Their abilities were equal to the most prominent throughout the Roman Empire of their day. But most sadly, beloved, within this great city, the church within appears to have taken on the personality of self-sufficiency that marked the city of Laodicea. You know, what's so remarkable remarkable about these seven letters is that quite often, each one of the cities follow the pattern of temptation within their respective cities. There's only two that receive no rebuke, if you recall. So this should challenge us. This ought to chasten and caution us to take heed to our surroundings to pay attention to our way of thinking. Is it according to the word of God or is it according to the environment that warmly surrounds us? Now, being incredibly self-sufficient, they were, in like manner, very self-confident. And oftentimes when you're extremely self-sufficient, you will be self-confident. And this plays right into the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church within the city of Laodicea. A church, according to their own self-evaluation, is doing very well. They're busy, they have works, they're rich, they have financial ability to fund their busyness, to fund their ministries within and without. So by all outward appearances here, this church is a smooth-running machine, beloved. I'm sure they're thinking, well, we haven't reached our peak yet, but we're certainly not on the decline. As a matter of fact, when you're in town, be sure to visit the church in Laodicea. And man, you will want to bring your friends because this place, it is just right. Everyone will love it. Jesus, the spokesman, now through this letter identifies himself to the church in Laodicea. Notice the spokesman, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now the Amen here derives from the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. Conveying the idea for us that that which is firmly established is true. That which has been laid down is trustworthy. This is a word familiar to worshipers. Uttering their confirmation with regard to that which they have heard. First Chronicles 16, 36, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen. And praise the Lord. Psalm 106, 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen. Praise the Lord. So addressing himself here as the Amen, the faithful true witness, he's saying to them that this, this takes a faithful and true witness, this takes the amen to say these very harsh words. So amen, beloved, is the emphatic yes. Amen is yes. As a confirmation, it is the positive or the assenting response to a prayer or the conclusion to a doxology. Beloved, Jesus Christ is our yes. Do you believe that? Jesus is our yes. Listen to Paul through the writing of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, Christ Jesus. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts is a guarantee. This is the reason, beloved, that our hermeneutical approach to biblical interpretation, Old Testament, New Testament, and Pacific Hope Church is Jesus Christ. He's our hermeneutical key, amen? Question, are all the promises of God to Israel, do they or do they not find their yes in Christ? All the promises of God find their yes in him. It was at the birth of Christ in an animal feeding trough that the Father said, Amen. Every word and every act of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry, the Father said, Amen. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the Father says, Amen. Jesus Christ is the covenantal promise of God fulfilled to which the Father said, Amen. Yes. As the pinnacle of redemptive history, on Calvary's cross, Jesus Christ, the Father says, Amen. Yes. The empty tomb, the Father says, Amen. So the Amen is a clear declaration that the message has been spoken and that message has been heard and the Father says, Amen. The church, therefore, says, Amen. Jesus is the Father's Amen. All, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Which promises, beloved? All promises. He is the yes. He's the amen. He is the one that is addressing the church of Laodicea. He's the witness who's faithful and true. He's the beginning of God's creation. Now, when we hear the beginning of God's creation, the word beginning here, R-K, this... Does not mean that he was created. If you think that Jesus was created and not creator, unless you're really confused, you're likely not saved. Because that means there's no way you can believe that Jesus is God, because God is eternal. Amen? Yeah. So if you have that problem, you will want to see me after service today. And I say that with, with love and very seriousness here. It's a word that means origin that Jesus Christ originated all things. He created them, he possesses them, he controls them, and they, beloved, exist to serve him. Creator, the logos, the word. Now, this truth calls to mind for us Colossians chapter one, amen? Well, come to your mind, is Colossians one. Now, listen to the words of Paul to the church of Colossae. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So here's Jesus, the source of God's initial created order. By him, all things were made. And as the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, he's also the source of the new creation, beloved. He is creator of the original cosmos that was created as he spoke it into existence. But it is also through Christ that all things are recreated. You, beloved, who are in Christ, are a new creature in Christ. You have new life in Christ. You have been born again from above. And we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Full consummation of his already established kingdom that commenced upon his ministerial arrival. Now, just as we call to mind here this Colossians passage, this church in Laodicea, this very same passage would have been brought to their minds. Now, Laodicea was about 10 miles from Colossae, and they had exchanged letters. When we get to chapter 4 of Colossians, notice, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Aeropolis. You're gonna wanna mark Aeropolis down. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, church of Colossae, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So here then, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who holds the keys of David, the all man, the faithful and true witness, the the originator of all the created order, he who spoke it into existence, says to the church in Laodicea, verse 15, an indictment. I know your works. Creator of the cosmos is saying this. Firstborn from the dead is saying this. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Beloved, there is no congregation, there is no individual Christian that is not known by the Lord through and through. He knows you, he knows me, he knows this body of believers, he knows us inside and out. Nothing can be hid. He knows where they dwell. He knows who Laodicea thinks they are and he knows what they really are. He knows where we dwell. (laughs) He knows his church. See, he's the head, the church is his body. He knows his body. He knows if there's an infection somewhere. He knows what needs to be purged out. Now, the Lord's customary pattern for his churches here of these letters usually begins with commendation, followed by a warning, followed by correction, and then some commendate, or a condemnation to some. As I said, there's only church, two churches that receive no condemnation. But notice here, the church of Laodicea, notice its strengths in the words of commendation. Don't look too long because they're not there. No words to commend this church. He doesn't mention any particular deeds, no strengths, but he refers to the temperature of this local body of believers. You are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. Imagine the awkwardness of the moment. They're likely standing there, wringing their hands, eyes wide open, waiting to hear words of affirmation, that God is acknowledging something that they're doing that is good here, and they're caught completely off guard. So here now, this very revealing and embarrassing indictment is followed up with these words. Notice, (laughs) so, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Lord Jesus says, your lukewarmness sickens me so that I'll vomit you out. Now, what's interesting here is that for all of La- Laodicea's resources, for their strong economy, for the fabric, their fabric industry, their, their medical center, all that they could possibly boast about, the thing that they last, lacked most of all Was a basic resource to everyday life, and that was water. They lacked water. There was no decent source of water anywhere in the city of Laodicea. The two nearest cities to Laodicea were Aeropolis and Colossae. Now, history informs us that Aeropolis had uh, hot springs, very popular hot springs that were helpful for restoring people's bodily health. They were thought to have had some medicinal ability to heal, some type of healing power. And this would draw the weak and the frail into Aeropolis. The other nearby city, that of Colossae, was known for their cold springs, great drinking water. And in between these two cities was Laodicea, where their only source of water was the Lycus River which was kind of stagnant, would dry up in the summer, and to drink from it would nauseate you, make you sick. And to some of these now self-confident Laodice- Laodicean Christians who might complain that the water made them sick, the Lord says here to this pampered bunch, that's exactly how I feel about you. You make me sick. Can you imagine that? So due to this lack of water, Laodicea had to pipe in water to their city by way of stone pipes. Three feet in diameter were these stone pipes. By the time the water was piped, on, piped in from Aeropolis, this, these hot springs, they had cooled down. They became lukewarm. By the time they piped in cold water from Colossae, it had warmed up. It became become lukewarm. Needless to say, the water that was imported was neither hot nor was it cold. Now, the metaphors here are clear. We don't need any heavy commentary on this. But this has to do with the condition of the heart, does it not? The heart of the congregation. Those that profess with their mouth Jesus Christ. Now, many over the years have interpreted this, and you've probably heard this, that Jesus said, look, I either want you to be on fire for me or cold for me, right? Well, it's very unlikely that the Lord wants his blood-bought church to be cold for him, amen? The context here is Christians, it's the church. So he's not saying I want you to be cold. What's more likely in view here is the contrast between the hot therapeutic waters of Aeropolis and the cold refreshing springs of Colossae. Robert Mounts comments on this and he says this, quote, the church in Laodicea was providing neither refreshment for the spiritually weary nor the healing for the spiritually sick. It was totally ineffective and thus distasteful to the Lord. Jesus is saying this, look, I wish Laodicea that you were hot because hot water invigorates and it revives. And if you're not hot, I wish you were cold because cold water refreshes and quenches thirst. So I want you hot or cold. I want hot people in the body. I want cold people. I want people who run hot and provide therapeutic restoration, doctrinally speaking, this is my own interpretation here now, doctrinally hot to provide therapeutic healing for the body of Christ with truth, while at the same time I want those in the body that are cold who provide refreshment to the weary, to the dreary, to the hurting. We need hot and cold people here, amen? amen? In this context. I wish that you were one or the other. Both are good, but due to your tepid temperature, I want to spit you out, vomit you out of my mouth because you're ineffective and you profess my name. Now, not only had this church taken on the characteristics of the city of Laodicea, it has also taken on the characteristics of its water. Lukewarm, they were an apathetic, half-hearted, uninterested people in the Lord that they professed. Are you with me, beloved? Now notice, this church, they're not not tolerating doctrinal heresy. They're not being reproved for allowing a Balaam-like false prophet within the body. They're not being rebuked by God for a false prophetess, one like the evil Jezebel, They're not practicing the deeds of the Nicolaitans which Jesus Christ said he hates. But there's also no mention of persecution which is the result of standing firm and proclaiming Jesus Christ. There's none of that. He said, you're all lukewarm. All y'all make me sick is what he's saying. So while they sit there, not passionately loving or caring for anything that Jesus loves or cares about, at the same time, they have no disdain or hatred for the very things that he hates. They're middle-of-the-road people standing on the fence. They haven't enough attitude or, or conviction here, no opinion, no passion for either hate or love of the things that Christ hates or loves. Dangerous place to be. Remember Sardis? As I said they had a reputation for being alive. The world said they're great. He said you're dead. So things aren't always as they appear. And the church of Laodicea wasn't anything like they thought of themselves. Notice what Jesus said. Hear now the deception, verse 17. Notice the deception. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, And naked. Now, when Jesus takes the spiritual temperature of a church, whether it's corporate or individual, the diagnosis is rarely what we expect. (laughs) The church of Laodicea would never have thought themselves to be wretched, in need of clothing, you know, naked, let alone in need of pity. They were self-sufficient, remember? Self-sufficient sufficient people don't need to be pitied. He says you're pitiable. So being assessed here as poor would have struck the core of their heart, would have broken down their character and their pride. On top of that, a city that prided itself on this famous ISAV, he said you're blind. <laughs> that black woven fabric You think you're clothed, guess what? You're naked, and you don't even realize it. So according to the Lord's analysis of the church of Laodicea, he now strips them naked of all pretenses and he exposes the true condition of their heart. That's what God does, amen? Remember 1 Samuel 16, and he calls Jesse to, Bring forth all of his sons one by one. Now that's not the one, that's not the one, that's not the one, that's not the one. Don't look at his outward appearance. Do you have any more sons? Well, I have a little guy. He's out there watching the sheep. Bring him, that's the one. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Knowing the heart, he says, look, I have comprehensive, intimate knowledge of exactly where you are and who you are as a congregation, Laodicea church that looked good on the outside. Hey, I'm sure giving was up, attendance is up, community activity is on the rise. Look at how good we look. Jesus said, you are the polar opposite of everything you think yourselves to be. Not so bad. They look like their city, who had need of nothing. Rome, we don't need your help. We got it covered. Jesus, we don't need your help got this down. Good to go. So their theological and spiritual problems were a result of their overabundance, which more often than not leads to warm, lukewarm self-sufficiency. Now, is it a sin for a Christian to be rich? Amen. Everyone always says that. That's true. (laughs) Is it, a, is it a sin for the, uh, a congregation to have wealth? No. If God provides, we rejoice. But the, ca- the case here, which is most often the case, beloved, is that wealth seduces. This is why Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because these riches, the overabundance, will seduce you into lethargy. That's why very few people can be wealthy and serve Christ in a healthy, spiritually rich manner. It's very deceiving. That's why Jesus spoke much about wealth. Nothing wrong with wealth, but the stewardship of it is a whole other issue. They were filled with such self-sufficiency that they weren't able to rightly discern their spiritual temperature because they were gauging themselves by themselves. That's a problem. That's how the kingdom of man works, by the way. There's two kingdoms. You live in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man as a Christian at the same time. Unbelievers live in the kingdom of man without being part of the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of man, they gauge their own wealth. They gauge their own strength. They gauge gauge their own well-being by themselves. Jesus says the way I gauge things in my spiritual kingdom is very different. What may look as strength to the city and kingdom of man is nothing but a burden, a problem, and a millstone to you, beloved. You're boasting in carnality. Laodicea, you are measuring success by the physical, by the visible, by the tangible, and you are nothing like you think you are. Nothing. So while they think themselves to be doing just fine, the Lord reveals not only their ignorance, but the ignorance of their ignorance, exposing their vanity. It's one thing to have your ignorance pointed out to you. It's another thing to be ignorant of your ignorance. That's where fools dwell. They don't want, it means they don't want to be taught. They don't know what they don't know, but they don't want you to tell them what they don't know. That's a fool in his folly. Vain Christians make up vain churches. Vain Christians are self-absorbed. The self-absorbed are self-confident. The self-confident are self-satisfied. And the self-satisfied are self-deceived. Aaron Perry, one of our servants and elders here, is currently attending Westminster Theological Seminary. And uh, one of his professors said this past week, and he said this to a group of 20-something-year-old young men, he said, most of you are used to changing your realities with the click of a button. Your reality's based on you, the subject. And that, of course, was in contrast to the objective reality of God's word. See, when you fade off into the wonder of cyberspace today, you can make yourself out to be whoever you want to be, You can make yourself out to whoever you want to be on Facebook. You can convince the world that this is who you are and what you are, and then the the, the trouble comes or the challenge comes to convince yourself that's really who you are. (laughs) Amen? Amen. Come on, youngsters. (laughs) You know people like that, but you're not like that. Amen? (laughs) You see, the affluence, the affluence of the church of Laodicea, it didn't lift them up to greater heights of spiritual insight or vision, but rather it became a disease that caused blindness to where they could not see what they really were, who they really are. Dennis Johnson quotes, comments on this. He said, quote, Laodicea's hallucinations of wealth are symptoms of potentially Terminal affluenza. Affluenza was a term that was coined about a decade ago uh, by a special on PBS uh, entitled, Affluenza is going to get you. They said, affluenza is, quote, an unhappy condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. This is what your health, wealth, and prosperity preachers on TV teach. They're leading their flocks into a trap. They will stand before God and hear the words, Beware lest many of you become teachers, for we will receive a stricter judgment, teacher. They better look out. So, the affluence of this church caused them to think, Notice, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Laodicea, got it covered, Rome. Church in Laodicea. Got it covered, Lord. Don't need your self-examine. don't need you to examine me. I can examine myself. Self-examination serves me quite well, and I'm always doing very well, Lord. How is it possible for a church to be wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked, and not know it? Everything on the outside looks tidy. And again, you don't take your own temperature. The word of God must take our temperature, amen? We must align all of our subjectivity to this objective reality, the word of God. So his diagnosis is you are not, (laughs) you're not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But now notice with this indictment, the loving Lord does not leave them there. You see that? Here he's talking to believers. Perhaps you are here today. He's not going to leave you here, he won't abandon you here. Notice he provides a solution. This solution, however, is very paradoxical. It's a very ironic solution. Notice the irony. Verse 18 I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you see so he just informed them that they were poor wretched and pitiable right and then he goes on to say but i want you to buy from me I want you to purchase that which you need. Though you have no money, you're poor, I want you to purchase from me. So from the standpoint, again, of man's kingdom, if you don't have it, you don't buy it, amen? Unless you live in America. (laughs) Go to lunch today and order your meal and then tell your waitress, this is what I want, but I don't have any money. Good day, sir. Uh, They take the water back. You need money to make conventional purchase, amen? Amen. Pretty simple. But with the Lord, this is not a conventional purchase. This is the kingdom of God. His kingdom operates differently. Different set of rules, whole nother playbook. So from the kingdom of God, the instruction is to buy what you don't have. That takes us back to our opening reading this morning, Isaiah 55. The prophet said, come, God says through the prophet, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk, without what? Without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and and why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, tune in and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. He's saying if you're truly hungry, you come and buy without money. You come and buy. There is no price. That's how you get what is needed from me. It is given freely. He says in effect, you're laboring, you're toiling, you're striving, you're stressing, you're anxious about that which will never satisfy you, beloved. You'll never be full. You'll never be able to obtain it. The more you get, the more you'll want. So come, buy from me. What did Jesus say to that massive crowd of Galileans in John chapter 6 he feeds the 5,000 they follow him around the Sea of Galilee he said most assuredly I say you, you seek me not because you see the signs and believe that I am who I claim but you have come to fill your stomachs you've come to get foddered up because you were fed yesterday and you're back for more what did he say? Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Amen. The church that thought themselves to be rich, the church that thought themselves to have need of nothing, they have to learn that true wealth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is in him alone. Not things pertaining to him, but they are in him. This is limitless wealth. It's in Christ alone. All the promises of which are yes in Christ. He says, buy from me gold. Gold refined by fire. Now, gold would certainly bring to mind to this group the prosperity of Laodicea. World-class bankers who dealt with currency on a daily basis. Refined gold, as you recall, is a biblical idiom for refining one's life and purging sin out. Remember what Job said, Job 23.10. He knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Refiner's fire. All the impurities rise to the top. Dross is scraped off. Pure, liquefied gold. He wants them to buy this gold from him, a commodity they could never afford on their own. I counsel you to buy from me gold gold refined by fire in order that you may be rich, those of you who think you're rich and are not, he says to Laodicea. So they were duty-bound, this group, to refine themselves in order to obtain these true spiritual riches. Remember Smyrna? Heavily persecuted church, Smyrna. Jesus said of them, I know your poverty, but you're what? You're rich. You were rich. You were wealthy. Why? Because you are being refined by way of persecution. And you see, true persecution, that's what it does to the church. Chaff blows away. You know who the true church is when there's heavy persecution. So Smyrna was purified. You are rich, Smyrna, though you look poor. On the outside, you are poor. But according to my kingdom, you're rich. Man's kingdom, you're poor. My kingdom, rich. Wealthy. And he says, I want you to purchase from me white garments. Now, this seems to contrast the white, or the black, rather, woolen garments that were woven here in Laodicea. But it's even more than that. Because what this really represents, beloved, is the festal garment that will be worn by the beloved of the Lord's at the great banquet of the Lord. Because there, no one will, be, will enter into that banquet who's not properly attired, properly clothed. And you have to be clothed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, provided by the king of kings alone. He provides that garment. Now, there was some in Sardis, another city, who were clothed in white because they had not what? Soiled their garments. Most in Sardis did soil their garments, and those who didn't were clothed in white, refusing to participate in cultural allegiance, which is idolatry. So there they were, clothed in white. The Lord also says, I want you to buy from me ISAV in the city famous for its optometrists in a city that developed eye salve. He said, anoint your eyes so that you may see. Apply this salve in order to regain spiritual discernment, which you have been blinded here in your lukewarmness. Blinded by lukewarmness. In John 9, Jesus healed a blind man. You remember that? Who remembers John 9 in our study? it was rich. It was one of my favorite series was preaching through John 9. Jesus said this in John 9, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Now some of the Pharisees heard him say these things and they said, are we also blind? You can hear the sarcasm in their mouth, right? Are we also blind, rabbi? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The God you think you know, you don't know. Because you think you see, you're blind. You say you serve Yahweh, you don't serve Yahweh because I am Yahweh in bodily form and you missed me. You don't see, you're blind. You serve the God of Mormonism and you think that it's the God of Christianity, you're blind though you think you see. You serve the God of Jehovah's Witnesses and you think it's the Christ of the Bible, you're blind though you think you see. Those who come blind saying, "Lord, help me. I can't see. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need the gospel. Shower me with your mercy though they're blind, they see." Jesus says, "I want you to buy from me." And the only way to acquire all of these riches is to admit that you can't afford them, is it to admit that you're bankrupt? then you'll be rich. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you acknowledge and admit here that you can't gain these riches other than by grace alone, you will see. So come, buy from me. Now the Lord continues here with the rod, the correction, and communion. Now, the Lord cites a principle here repeated elsewhere in Scripture, verse 19. Those whom I love, did you get that? Those whom I love, I reprove. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So be zealous and repent. Now, the Lord is saying this, beloved, don't miss this. If you are a Christian, this should encourage you when you fall into the, the uh, tepid water of lukewarmness, which we all do occasionally, amen? Hopefully far and few between, but when we do, Be encouraged. Look, if you're not mine, I would not correct you. If I did not love you, I would not discipline you. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. If I were going to abandon you, I would not write you, I would not examine you, and I would not chasten you, nor would I make available to you gold, white garments, and eye salve to help your blindness. Because I love you, I provide these things. How do you know your mind? Because I do inspect you, because I do reprove you, and I correct you. That's how you know your mind. See, beloved, we, ha- we have to pray for insight. Amen? amen. We must pray for discernment, for wisdom, to-, to be sure that we're being fully dependent upon the Lord at all times and in all things. Show me, Lord, my ways. Show me, Lord presumptuous sin within me as David cried out so we need for him to persistently examine us to expose us and to make a true diagnosis of our condition painful for the moment amen but essential for the soul so we need him constantly to prune the vine of Pacific Hope Church while he prunes the vines plural that make up Pacific Hope Church, Amen. So, Laodicea needed to be shaken. They needed to be awakened from their lukewarm indifference, from self-confidence, to be exposed to their true character. That's what's. That's the danger of self-reliance as a Christian. Now, because he demonstrates his love for them by way of reproof and discipline, notice, he he continues, he says, I call you to be zealous and to repent. Two commands. Repent, an aorist imperative. This is what he's saying. Change your mind now, immediately. That's what repent is, to have a change of thinking, and I call you to do that now. Change your your mind about the loyalty that you have towards this culture. Change your thinking about the disloyalty you've had towards me. Which is the very reason for your substitute allegiance for all things besides me. So repent. Number two, be zealous. present imperative. As you repent, this now, this zealousness uh, stresses a continual action, action. Keep on being zealous for me. Turn from the culture. Become zealous for who I am. Become zealous for what I've done for you. Become zealous for who you are in me. Great zeal. And then continue onward. Now, zeal contrasts lukewarmness. Amen? Clearly. So, being neither cold nor hot reveals an absence of zeal. You can't have zeal if you're lukewarm. But when this is pointed out, this word zeal means to have a warmth for. It, it, it pictures something heating up to the boiling point. This is what I want you to be. Now that you know these things, he says, have zeal. that will produce the fruit of repentance. Because you're mine. When you're disciplined by the Lord, does it encourage you? Or does it cause you to spiral down into a pit of despair? You should be encouraged. A father who does not love his children does not discipline his children. Amen? I tried to convince my kids of that for years. (laughs) I love you. That takes time. Amen? Discipline takes time. You have to be engaged. You don't just let them go. That shows you don't care. Because you have to exercise your mind and your will. It takes effort. That's what the Lord does. He's engaged with those that are his because he's married to them. Does the Lord love the world? Does he love them like he loves his church? No. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines He has a special effectual love for his bride, the church, that he does not have for the world, beloved. That's why husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Therefore, those you love like that, you discipline. So that's the command. Notice the communion. Now, those whom he loves, he rebukes, notice. He disciplines them, and then he invites them to dinner. which represents intimacy. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus just said, those whom I love, I discipline. Don't forget who he's talking about. This whole knocking on the door business is his church. Okay? We must not rip this out of its ecclesiastical context. I've heard this ver- verse used a hundred times at least for evangelistic outreaches. <laughs> it's really quite crazy, actually. They, 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 they portray Jesus as this weary traveler. He goes from house to heart, house, heart to heart, just knocking on the door, hoping that you'll let him in because the handle, beloved, is on the inside. And it takes you to open the door. This is what they teach. God cast a vote for you, Satan cast a vote against you, and it's up to you to cast the deciding vote. Please let him in. That's nonsense. Unbiblical, poor unbiblical doctrine. The metaphor here has nothing to do with that scene whatsoever, beloved, He's talking to his church. This addresses the already people of God, although he said they're miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Nevertheless, he owns them. They're his. He already bought them. His church. Who didn't realize that they were miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. And now he just corrected them. Disciplined them. And now they're responsible to repent. To apply everything he's just pointed out. See, this is reminiscent of his parables. Remember? The master who leaves his house for a time, he goes off to a far country. Another one of his parables, he goes to a wedding feast. When he returns, he expects his servants to be prepared. He knocks on the door, and then, beloved, he sovereignly burst into that house, providing either salvation or judgment, not a request. Look at Luke 12 beginning in verse 35. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and what? Knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at a table. See the intimacy of dining there? He will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour a thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So, in anticipation of the great marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lord says, I'm standing at the door of the church and knocking to my people. So this is not to be seen, beloved, is Jesus pathetically standing outside in the rain, blowing heat into his hands, just hoping for someone to unlock the human heart. That's not the picture. This is a sovereign knock of warning and judgment because he is the master of the house. Is he or is he not the master of the house? Oh, yes, he is, beloved. He owns it. He owns everything. It's his. Now, although we see portrayed here in a telescopic sense, this great marriage supper of the Lamb, what we don't want to miss here is the intimate emphasis on communion with Christ on a day-to-day basis. Okay, now if you're in Christ, you have an eternal union with him. Do you understand that? You have a union with Christ that cannot be broken. I tell you what, if you are blood-bought, there's nothing you can do to escape his grip. I'm talking to true believers. You're truly born again from above. That union is eternal. You can't mess it up and he won't let go. However, we do have the potential to mess up communion with God. And that's what this is talking about. This is communion. I stand at the door of my church and I knock. Let me in. Because you can hinder and and push God off in, in a communal sense. That's what he's telling them to repent from. Because of the union that they have. And those who are truly in Christ, beloved, they will repent. Those who don't repent of a condition like this prove that they were never saved in the first place. Dennis Johnson comments, quote, the Laodiceans cannot avert his arrival by ignoring his knock, but their response to his warning will determine whether his entrance brings them the joy of the banquet or the exposure of their shame, end quote. Notice now the promise. This is a promise of reward to those who persevere, verse 21. The one who conquers... I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, we as believers, beloved, share in his messianic reign. For he's the ultimate conqueror, amen? He is victor, and he is victor by allowing himself to become victim. Jesus wasn't victimized by man. Don't have that picture in mind. But he allowed himself to be victimized, delivering himself into the hands of man and then laying his life down on the cross. Defeating sin, defeating Satan, defeating death, rising and ascending to the Father here, he says, look, if you persevere in faith by way of unity in me, you will share, beloved, in that victory. This is the hope that we have. See, there's a finish line. To sit on the throne with Christ, who's ascended to the Father? Persevere. He said something similar to the church of Thyatira, Revelation two twenty six. look back a page or so. The one who conquers and who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And all, and he, rather, will rule with them with a rod of iron. And when, when earth and pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. See, his resurrection was the vindication that assured him the kingdom. And he rules that kingdom now. Now, and this kingdom is no less ours in Christ because we're in Christ. That's what he's saying. Because you're in me, I call you to repent. I call you to be zealous because I'm telling you it is here on his throne in a glorified sense that our pilgrimage will end. That's the finish line. This is the hope. Unbelievers don't have hope. Only we in Christ have hope. Notice finally the summons, verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we never forget, beloved, that we need to be refined. Your pastor needs to be refined. You need to be refined. Your brother next to you needs to be refined. Your husband needs to be refined. Your wife needs to be refined. We need undefiled garments. We need eye salve regularly to see clearly. We need the Lord's diagnosis, not our own. The problems and the temptations of Laodicea are our problems and temptations, amen? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this letter simply speaks to the deadly predicament of a lukewarm church. It's neither hot nor cold. You know, it's really easy to normalize the Laodicean spirit. It's really easy to normalize this condition. Well, we don't want to be overly dogmatic. We don't want to be too extreme. So we'll stand in the middle where it's safe. This is where it feels just right. Not too hot, not too cold, but middle of the road, a middle of the road people in the middle of the road church. Do we want that? Never. Never. So it's easy, and it's tempting to be a middle-of-the-road people in a middle-of-the-road church, especially with doctrinal issues of importance. Not just essential issues, but non-essential issues as well. It's easy to say, well, here's one position, here's another, we'll stand in the middle, because if we don't, people will be offended, and they'll start pointing their fingers at us and calling us extremists or whatnot. Forget that. Lukewarmness is a really strange phenomenon as I close up here. And it affects the church to this day. And I never want us to be this. I mean, how is it possible to be lukewarm in the church of Jesus Christ? It's quite simple. Okay, now listen to this as I close. You need hot people and you need cold people. You need cold people who are gifted with coldness in this sense to be the refreshment that is needed to others in the body. Okay, now, I can be one or be seen as one in my family who serves hot, doctrinal truth, stand for the truth, die for the truth, know what, know, know what fight to fight, know what mountains to die on, that type of thing. To give the gospel, to herald the gospel, to preach the gospel. And then someone like my wife serves cold, very refreshing. Someone who's down, very encouraging, like a cup of cold water on a hot day. I want to and continue to grow to learn how to also serve cold. For instance, if you've ever been counseled by me, is my counsel the same as my preaching? Somebody give me a a witness. (laughs) No, it's a different style of ministry. This is much different than counsel in my office with an individual. There I have to, I want to serve cold. Here, I want to serve hot. Sometimes cold, but not too much. We need it all, eh, amen? Be hot, be cold, don't be middle of the road. You'll make me puke. That's what he said. You'll make me sick. See, lukewarm Christians say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ, I know I need Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but uh, there's not much about him that excites me. Quite frankly, he bores me to death. Look, if you're a Christian and you know that's how you feel, you must examine yourself to see if you're truly in the faith. Do that for the glory of God and for the benefit of yourself that you're not deceived. To claim Jesus Christ as Lord and yawn in his face? May we not ever. So hot and cold water, beloved, both serve very important functions within the church. We need the hot serving a doctrinally therapeutic and medicinal service to one another and to the lost. And we desperately need cold, refreshing to the spiritually weary along with the spiritually lost. But we do not want to remain silent. We do not want to be secretive, nor do we want to be self sufficient because that's lukewarmness. That makes the Lord sick. Amen. Now, I say this there's some people who are unbelievers who will come in a place like this and hear a message like this. They've never been born again from above, which means they're not saved. And they'll convince themselves that, well, I'm just a lukewarm Christian. I guess I better shape up and kind of apply these things to my life. Well, the reality of the matter is, there's someone who professes Christ with their mouth, but they don't possess a relationship with Christ. That is a frightfully dangerous place to be because you're not even in. You can't repent of that to be zealous because you haven't even been a recipient of the gospel yet. So if the Spirit of God has worked today and moved in your life to reveal to you and show you the true condition of your heart that you're not even in Christ, the offer's free. <laughs> Come buy from me. Without money, without price to you, but it cost everything to me. Cost him his son. He had to stand in your place. He had to meet the standard of the Father, which is holy perfection, sinlessness. And not only did he have to uphold the law first, he had to lay his life down, go to the cross, in order to bear the unmitigated hatred. In wrath of the Father that was poured out upon Jesus, who became sin in our place. Only for those who believe. You, in response, must repent. Change of thinking, change of ways, change your beliefs. There's not many roads to God, friends. There's one, and it's Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in him and him alone, you're lost. (laughs) Come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Repent of your self-reliance. Repent of your idolatry of yourself. Believe in the gospel. The good news is that I paid the price, Jesus said. I laid down my life. I rose again. You believe in me, you will have life everlasting and believe in the gospel, you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the reminder, Lord, for myself first, and to this congregation as a whole, I do thank you, Lord, that this church runs hot and cold, and it's a joy to see. But I also know, Lord, that if it's not according to your grace, as soon as we think we stand, we need to take heed lest we fall. So we do pray for your protection, protection from ourselves. We pray that we would not take our own spiritual temperature, but we would always be quick to allow your word, the eternal word of Almighty God, to be the standard for which we provide analysis and diagnose ourselves according to the word, which is to allow you to diagnose us. Lord, I pray that your people would be built up today. I I pray that those um, within the body who are are such a blessing, like a cold drink of water, Lord, to a weary traveler, and those who are are just steaming on fire, provide doctrinal clarity, who have the ability to teach, who uh, are quick to want to correct erroneous thinking when it comes to the word of God. Lord, I pray that you bless this entire church, every single member in a new and fresh way to be encouraged, to be blessed. And anyone who's secretive about their faith, anyone who's tepid, those lukewarm believers, Lord, I pray that this would provide an avenue of greater understanding that would birth within them a a zealousness to repent and to serve hot and or cold and to forsake this lukewarmness. And Lord, for anyone who came and lost today, I, I pray that this would be the day of awakening, the day of new life in Christ for your glory, further, furtherance of your kingdom. Pray it in Jesus' mighty, mighty name. We thank you. Amen.